This morning we're going to consider slaves and their masters. Slaves and their masters. Our passage is 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 through to 25. Slavery is one of those subjects that evokes anger in some, guilt and shame in others, and many people, they don't really think beyond the enslavement of Africans with all the cruelty and inhumanity associated with it. However, the fact of the matter is that there has always been slave labour and it still exists today in various forms and with varying degrees of barbarity. As for what the Bible has to say on the subject, slave trading is declared to be a sin. For example, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul said, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. In that long list there, men-stealers refers to people who kidnap others for the purpose of making them slaves. They are subject to God's law and its punishment. What was said by the Apostle Paul is in agreement with the Old Testament law in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 16, where it is written, And he that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. So let's be very clear about something, and that is that the Bible does not promote the slave trade. To do that would be a violation of God's commandment to love your neighbour as yourself. Nevertheless, the Bible recognises that slavery is a reality in this fallen world and it doesn't ignore it. Rather, it gives instructions to slaves and to their masters. Today we are going to look at instructions from the Apostle Peter to Christian slaves concerning their relationship with their masters. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through to 20, Peter said, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it ye take it patiently? This is acceptable with God. 
depending on what Bible version you are reading, you may have slaves in verse 18 instead of servants. The Apostle Paul had much to say to slaves in his letters. However, the original Greek word that has been translated servants or slaves here in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18 actually refers to household servants. To give you some idea of what it might have been like to be a slave or a servant or a household servant in the Roman Empire, the historian Arthur A. Ruprecht has written that the living conditions of any slaves were better than those of free men who often slept in the streets of the city or lived in very cheap rooms. There is considerable evidence to suggest that the slaves <coughs> lived within the confines of their master's house. They usually lived on the top floor of their owner's city house or country villa. In Pliny's Laurentian villa, the quarters for the slaves and freedmen were in a separate section of the house, but were considered attractive enough to be used for the entertainment of overnight guests. The slave was not inferior to the free men of similar skills in regard to food and clothing. But having said all of that, we needn't run away with some fanciful idea that all slaves or servants or household servants in the Roman Empire were treated with compassion. But clearly some of them were. For example, in Luke chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, it is written, And a certain centurion's slave, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his slave. So we have a centurion with compassion for his slave, sending people to Jesus to heal his slave. Coming now to instructions to Christian servants or slaves. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul said, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. And here in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18 that we're looking at this morning, much the same thing was said with household servants being exhorted by Peter to be subject to their masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. That exhortation follows on from what was considered last week, if you think back to last week in verse 13, where Christians are urged to submit to the civil authorities, those who rule over us. We are to submit to them for the Lord's sake. The earthly rulers are ordained by God and it follows that submission to our rulers is tantamount to submission to God, who put them in place. However, it's not quite the same thing when it comes to 
submission to slave owners in as much there is no suggestion in verse 18 that they were ordained by God, that they were put in place by God. Even so, slaves or servants were, were to be subject to their masters with all fear. Clearly, a servant is not in the position to do as he wishes. A slave is in no position to do as he wishes. He is a person under authority who, when bid to come, must come. When he is bid to go, he must go. And when bid to do this, he must do it. He doesn't have any choice. Even so, subjection cannot be expected and it cannot be insisted upon if what is required for a servant or a slave or, or let's broaden it, a paid employee, if what is required of them is inconsistent with God's law. That is another matter altogether. As the Apostle said, we ought to obey God rather than men. That applies equally to the demands of our civil rulers. If national and local laws contradict God's laws, and there are many of them, we can all think of laws that are a a clear contradiction of God's laws, abortion, same-sex marriage, to name but two. We would be wrong to support those laws. We would be violating God's laws. And we must bow and yield to the higher law that comes from God. And we do so at the risk of being punished by the rulers of our land. Also in verse 18 we see that obedience to masters was to be with all fear. All fear, not just with fear but with all fear. The question is, all fear of who or what? As Christians, passing the time of our sojourning in the world with fear, we are to fear God. Slaves were to fear God with all fear. And when it is all fear, that means that there is no fear left for anyone else. When you fear God with all fear, there's no fear for anyone else. In the providence of God, those dear Christians who were lowly slaves are like all other Christians at the end of the day. They were to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, not fearing men who can destroy the body but not the soul, but fearing God who can destroy both body and soul in hellfire. A healthy fear of God is extremely advantageous in that it is a very good inducement to continually keep the Lord in your sights and to do even the most menial and undesirable tasks for the glory of God. Regardless of whether those tasks are at school or in the workplace and regardless of whether the taskmaster is gentle or a brutal tyrant. You do whatever you do with a very healthy fear of God and you keep your eyes fixed upon the Lord. 
Let's have a look at verses 19 through to 21 in 1 Peter chapter 2. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. In these verses, there is an acknowledgement from the Apostle that there are masters who treat their slaves shamefully and they beat them. That can just as easily be the experience of not just Christians, but unbelievers as well. It's not just Christian slaves who can get treated shamefully. Any slave can be treated shamefully. But more widely, there is much suffering in the world, and no one is exempt from being on the receiving end of violence. You don't have to just be a Christian to be on the receiving end of violence. However, if you are If you, as a Christian, have your sights fixed on God, the God of your salvation, when you suffer wrongfully or for no good reason, that is acceptable to God and it is evidence of God's grace towards you. The very fact that when you are suffering wrongfully, that you have your eyes fixed upon Jesus, that in itself is something to rejoice over. Do Do you get that? It's really when the rubber hits the road and things are tough. Because anyone can be a fair-weather Christian and there are a lot of fair-weather Christians about. Jesus spoke of his flock being a little flock. The little flock are the ones that hear his voice, they follow him and they continue to keep their eyes fixed upon him even when they are being beaten and buffeted and treated shamefully. And that in itself is evidence that they are, um, that they are children of God with a heavenly inheritance. That has got to be something to rejoice about. In the following verses, the Apostle Peter put the spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was buffeted, nailed to a wooden cross, and crucified by wicked men. Jesus is the one whom Christians are to be conscious of and look to for strength and consolation when they suffer wrongfully. We look to Jesus. Let's have a look at verses 22 and 23 concerning Jesus. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. None of us in here is able to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ by offering ourselves as a sacrifice for sin. Why is that? Because we're sinners. 
The sinless Son of God was uniquely qualified to reconcile sinners like us to God. For Christ also have once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Nevertheless, Jesus, who suffered in order to save us, people like us, from our sins, and to do us the highest good by washing us with his own precious blood and clothing us with garments of salvation and covering us with the robe of righteousness is the great example to all of us who are trusting in him when we suffer wrongly for doing good. With Jesus as our example with respect to unjust suffering at the hands of wicked men, it can be seen in verse 22 that he did no sin. Neither was guile, guile is deceit, no deceit found in his mouth. Throughout the earthly sojourn of Jesus, he never sinned in anything that he said or in anything that he did. When he was put on trial by the chief priests, they could find no charges against him. Witnesses gave false testimonies, but they contradicted one another. When Jesus was handed over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, Pilate said, I find in him no fault at all. Pilate knew that for envy they had delivered him. Even Pilate's wife knew that Jesus had done no wrong. She said to her husband, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. And when Jesus was lifted up to die on the cross, one of the two thieves who were crucified with him said to the other thief, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man have done nothing amiss. Even though the sinless Son of God was put on trial, mocked, blindfolded, buffeted, scourged, spat upon, nailed to a cross and lifted up to die by wicked men, verse 23 tells us that he did not retaliate. That really is something when you think about how how indignant we can become People like us, who so easily do things wrong, we all sin in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, but boy, don't we get indignant when someone dares to accuse us falsely. Eh? We get quite angry with them. Me? How dare you accuse me? But Jesus, we see that there was... He did not retaliate at all. Jesus, who never did anything wrong and who always did that which was pleasing to his Father, he did not answer insults with insults, neither did he make any threats when he suffered at the hands of sinful men. 
Instead, he committed himself to his father. That reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, where it is written that we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Through all that suffering, Jesus had his eyes on higher things, on God, on his Father, being seated by his Father. When you suffer unjustly, whether it be in the workplace or wherever, oftentimes you will have no option but to submit or else you lose your job. Sometimes you just got to swallow it, haven't you? When you're being treated badly in the workplace or as you see it when you're being treated unfairly at school. You just got to get on with it. But more than that, if you are a Christian, you are to do something that other people cannot do. And that is, you are to commit yourself to God, whose child you are. Only you can do that, Christian. No one else can do that when you're being picked on and when you're being treated badly. You commit it to God. That is well-pleasing to God. And it is a very blessed position to be in. Again, do you appreciate that? That when everyone else is suffering, you, as well as suffering along with them, you commit it all to the God of your salvation. The one who will give you that ultimate deliverance when he takes you to be with him in glory. There are no promises that you will uh, not ever experience difficulties and trials and tribulations, tears and sorrow in this world. But it's a wonderful thing to know that God is with you in all of these things and to commit everything to God in prayer and to know that one day you will see your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and be with him. All that happened when Jesus was crucified was done according to the foreknowledge of God and with his predeterminate counsel. In other words, God knew that it was going to happen. The suffering Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus sweat great drops of blood, when he was scourged and buffeted, blindfolded, nailed to a cross, lifted up to die, it was according to God's eternal decree. And earlier we... we Listened as Isaiah chapter 53 was read to us. All that was, all that's in God's eternal decree concerning Jesus, not all of it, but we read a lot of it in Isaiah 53. Jesus being wounded and bruised, afflicted, having iniquity laid upon him. So it came as no surprise to God at all. Indeed, when Jesus started his public ministry, John the Baptist, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the the sin of the world. Jesus was heralded as the Lamb of God. In other words, the sacrificial Lamb. 
And that straight away points us to the cross and to the sacrificial death of Jesus. With regards to the substitutional death of Jesus, it is written in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How did it, how did it please the Lord to bruise his only begotten son at the cross? Because in so doing, his eternal decree was fulfilled. His plan for redemption was fulfilled when Jesus was bruised at the cross. Christians are forever thankful to God that as it is written in our text in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 he bare our sins in his body on the tree. Peter's choice of word tree and not cross points us back to Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23 in the Old Testament where it is written he that is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. The Apostle Paul referred to that in his epistle to the Galatians and he explained that Christ have redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The consequence of Jesus bearing away the sins of others in his own body, on the tree, is that all who have shown repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ no longer exist for sin. They now live for righteousness and the Lord Jesus Christ is their righteousness. That new existence is the complete opposite of the old one, which consists of living for sin and for self, which describes everyone else in this world. If they're not living for Jesus, they're living for self. If you are a Christian, then you you no longer are like a sheep going astray, going your own way and heading towards a sheer drop into everlasting destruction. Instead, by the grace of God, you have now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul, the Lord Jesus Christ, And you have done that because God has rescued you out of the devil's dark domain and he has transferred you into the kingdom of his dear son. God has done all of these things. When you consider that the sinless saviour became a substitute sin bearer on the tree, taking the curse of sin upon himself, Does anyone in here or anyone else who may hear this sermon dare to continue to reject Jesus? You're not brave, but you are very, very foolish indeed, if that is you. Very foolish. Sinfully foolish. Let me tell you plainly that if you do not belong to Jesus, if he is not your saviour and your Lord, then you are a slave of sin. We've been looking at slavery, 
You are a slave of sin, a willing slave of sin. And Jesus is not your saviour and your Lord. You are a slave of sin. You are of your father, the devil, if you don't belong to Jesus. And the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And I say again, if you are not bound to Jesus, if you do not belong to Jesus, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus, if he is not your saviour and your Lord, then you are a slave to sin and you do the lust of your father, the devil. That's how serious it all is. To you I say, repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Amen.